The scripture for today's sermon comes from Mark chapter 15, verse 42, through chapter 16, verse 8. The word of God speaks to us. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that she, he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph brought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is the word of God to us. Amen. Thanks, Brittany. Good morning. Happy Easter. Hey, uh, it, it's hard for me to put into words the amount of delight and gratitude I have in this moment. Uh, my name is Josh Krim, one of the pastors here at Frontline Church in downtown OKC. And, you know, today is our 17th birthday as a church. And, amen, that's a big deal. And I can honestly say that there's no other place on the planet that I would rather be than in this room with you guys this morning. And in the midst of all of the delights and all of the joy that I'm experiencing, just getting to sing with you and hear your voices and see new friends and old friends, the thing that's really clear as the greatest delight of my life and the greatest delight and responsibility of this moment is that my task is really simple. My task is really simple. In fact, all I'm here to do today is to the best of my ability, hopefully with the help of the Holy Spirit, to help you hear the invitation of your Father in heaven. And what's wild about the invitation from your Father in heaven is that it says, wide is all of humanity, and at the very same time, it's as specific as your story. And his invitation is so sweeping in its scope that it goes out in this moment to all of us, irrespective of the particularities of your self-diagnosis. To the cynical, his, his invitation is extended today. To those in the room that feel that you're in the grip of anxiety and depression, his invitation is extended today. To those that feel faith in your chest in an almost tangible way and it feels steady and it feels secure and it feels vibrant, his invitation is extended to you. And to those who survey their chest and find no faith, 
who don't know what you believe, to the agnostic, to the atheist, to those that have been hurt in the church, to those that feel cynical and suspicious in this very moment, the invitation of a father goes to you. Because that very same father has spoken and he's spoken in creation. His fingerprints are all around us. And he's spoken through prophets in various times. And there's been moments where the supernatural broke into this created world and even angelic messengers brought the invitation of our father. But in the fullness of time, 2,000 years ago in an actual place with actual people that witnessed these events, the invitation of the father spoke loudest and most clearly in his son, Jesus. And today, as we open our text, as we turn to Mark, the thing I long for is not for you to be introduced to abstract theological constructs or another philosophy. The thing I want for you so deeply is for you to hear the invitation of your father as a profound answer. My favorite philosopher said that there's nothing more boring than a question or than an answer to a question that you haven't asked. And I don't want Easter to be that for you. I don't want this to be a celebration in answer to lament that you haven't entered into. What I want you to feel today is that all around us, there's a sound taking place. There's a sound inside of you. There's a sound around you. The Bible describes that sound as a groaning. It's a sound that's especially hard to hear for those of us that are in the tiny percentage of people in human history that are blessed to live in a moment with relatively decent health care and a secure government and jobs that are okay. But nonetheless, the sound is still here. It's still background noise. And there's moments in our human lives, there's moments in our frailty, there's moments when things break so profoundly that you can't drown out the sound. You hear it when you don't want to hear it. It can't be ignored. It's the sound of a coffee shop in Eastern Europe that one moment stands as a beacon of democracy and upward mobility and the quest for cool being shattered by a Russian missile. It's the sound of a Thai beach that suddenly has the water retreat in prelude to a tsunami that will maim and kill hundreds of thousands of people. It's the sound of cells in our bodies going haywire and instead of multiplying to sustain us and give us life, they multiply to betray us and kill us. It's the sound of a teenage girl being taken advantage of at a party. It's the sound of all the caskets, the billions of caskets since the beginning of humanity, especially the little ones. But it's also a really personal sound. It's a sound that takes sin out of our cultural obsession with pretending that it's just a list of arbitrary taboos that someone came up with to prevent us from having a good time. It's the sound we hear in the midst of us breaking the things that we were supposed to build. It's the sound we hear when we hurt the people that we love the most. It's the sound we hear in our broken promises. It's the sound of who we thought we were colliding with who we actually are in moments that feel really raw and exposed. It's the sound of rejection. It's the sound of betrayal. It's the sound of violence. 
It's the sound of our culpability in what's wrong around us. It's the sound of the gap. It's the gap between the way things are and the way that things should be. It's the gap between entropy and eternity. It's the gap that's made up of brokenness and curse and choice and consequence. It's the gap where all that's beautiful, a mother's love for a baby, and all that's ugly, hatred and racism and objectification meet together. It's the gap that's all around us. And the sound of the gap, that background noise that sometimes sounds like a train wreck, that gap has never been louder than 2,000 years ago in Palestine. And this writer, Mark, who's recording events from eyewitnesses, records the gap in chapter 15 with a word that I find hard to even utter. He describes Jesus Christ as a corpse. Listen to these words. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. But when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. Jesus Christ is described rightly as a corpse, a lifeless body. The laugh that brought joy and hope to religious outsiders has now been silenced. The hand that stretched out to touch the unclean and make the unclean clean is now cold. The mouth that spoke the very words of God, words that actually brought hope to the prostitute and to the drunkard and to the tax collector, that mouth is closed. The heart that seemed to contain limitless compassion, vitality, life, humanity as it's supposed to be, that heart has stopped beating. Jesus is a corpse. Francis Spufford, a British novelist, describes it like this. The friends creep out at dusk and they ask for the body, promising anonymous burial and no fuss. They're allowed to carry it away, wrapped in a tube of linen that slowly stains from the inside. Jesus is a corpse. And the historical Christian claim since the very beginning, a claim made by Jesus and his earliest followers, a claim that will eventually be made by his own mother, is that this Jesus who is now a corpse is not just another good teacher. He's not just another good man. He's not just a rabbi. He's not just another prophet. The thing that makes these words so shocking, so offensive, so hard to read is that Jesus is described as the son of God, now a corpse. It seems in this moment that death must indeed be stronger than love, that sin must be greater than forgiveness, that violence is more powerful than peace, that lies are always, at the end of the day, going to be louder than the truth because Jesus is a corpse. Friends, if this is the end of the story, I need you to be really clear about this. Christianity is of no use whatsoever. If this is the end of the story, the Bible's not true, the Bible's a lie, and it should be discarded. 
If this is the end of the story, every person that's ever put their faith in Jesus since the beginning of his coming until this day, 2,000 years later, are of all people most to be pitied. They died in hopelessness, disillusioned by either a liar or a man that got it profoundly wrong. If this is the end of the story, it means that the grave is hungry and gets the last word on anything. And at some point in the future, the sun's gonna burn out. And in that moment, the very last memory of humanity and love and beauty will be done. That's the final word. If this is the end, then maybe God is just a sky fairy created by weak-minded people who are too terrified to look into the abyss like adults and see that there's nothing there. But listen, the claim of Christians since the very beginning is that this is not the end. What we believe and what we're baking our entire life upon is that the story doesn't end with him being a corpse. And God's answer to the great gap to the sound of creation groaning, to the sound of sin and decay and brokenness and disease and oppression and all the things that we do to each other that are so tragic and wrong find their answer not in another philosophy but in an empty tomb. That God speaks through Jesus. Something happened that transformed the sin and the torture and the judgment and the suffering and the humiliation of the cross into what Christians call in ways that baffle our friends that don't believe Good Friday. Something happens that invites you and me to listen to the sound of the gap in our own lives, not to ignore the sound or to pretend it's not there or to try to detour around it, but to listen to the sound of the gap, the groaning of creation around us and inside of us in a different way in light of where the story actually ends. It invites us to stop trying to avoid the gap, to build a bridge over to the gap, to ignore it or to detour around it. It invites us from the Father to meet the Son in the gap, to find Jesus alive and well in the very worst of places. And so friends, I want you to come with me and let's open this story together and see where it really ends. I wanna show you four things. Four places where Jesus meets his friends and where the Father invites us to meet Jesus in the gap. Number one, the resurrected Jesus met them in the place of death. The place of death. Chapter 16, verse 1, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And they said to them, and he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth. He was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Hey, listen, the tomb is the address of death. And death is the great tyrant. He's the great equalizer. Whether you're rich or poor, whether you're educated or uneducated, whether you're relatively healthy or plagued with chronic sickness, death is coming for all of us. 
And these women go to death's address. They go to the seminary, cemetery. They go to the very tomb, the place where death reigns supreme, expecting to find a corpse, but instead of a corpse, they find a message. And the message is, he is not here. Instead of a body, they find discarded burial clothes. Instead of grief and lament, they find a hopeful invitation. What's happened in this moment is profound. William James described death, described death as the worm at the core of man's pursuit of happiness. Charles Taylor unpacks what that means when he says, death is one of the things that makes it very difficult to sustain a sense of the higher meaning of ordinary life. In particular, our love relationships. It's not just that these relationships matter to us a lot, and hence there's a grievous hole in our lives when our partner dies. It's also that because these relationships are so significant, they seem to demand eternity. Stoic philosopher Epictetus He wrote this, what harm is there when you're kissing your child to murmur softly, tomorrow you will die? To which all of us are like, a lot. (laughs) We want to rage against death. We want to fight it. We want to resist it. And what we find is that these women meet Jesus in the very place of death, the place where the gap is most pronounced, where it's most visceral, where it's most terrifying, instead of finding a corpse, they find the news. Jesus is alive. Track with me, this means everything. This means that Jesus Christ is the beginning of a new creation. That death that reigned since the beginning has now been defeated in the resurrection of Jesus. That as the lifeless lungs of Jesus miraculously inflated with air, as the brain that had stopped firing neurotransmission to the body started firing, as the nerves reconnected, as his hands started moving again, as he started breathing, as he opened his eyes, what's happening is not just a one-off for Jesus, what's happening is a moment in which the new order that God desires for the world that's groaning under the weight of death to experience has broken in, it it snuck into the graveyard when we didn't expect it, death itself is on the clock to die. This means that for followers of Jesus, his death is ours, but his life is ours. This doesn't mean that we get to then pretend that death is not sad or death is not bad. We're waiting for the great day, but here's what the Bible teaches. We don't grieve as those that don't have hope. Just as Christ was raised, we will be raised And the fact of the matter is, to be a believer in Jesus is to be brought into a place of courage where though death is grievous and sad, we don't have to live in fear or denial of it. Julie Beck has a great line in The Atlantic, speaking of death. Here's what she says. Americans are the best in the world at burying existential anxieties under a mound of French fries and a trip to Walmart to save a nickel on a lemon and a flamethrower. Like, I love that. Like, and I want to know where that Walmart is so that I can acquire said flamethrower. Like, here's the point I'm trying to make. For the people of God that have trusted in Jesus, we don't have to try to build 
an artificial bridge over the gap of death or a detour around it or just stay busy or ignore the sound of creation groaning. We don't have to stick our fingers in our ears. The resurrection of Jesus is the good news that death is on the clock and we get to taste the first fruits of eternal life now in this broken world as we trust Jesus. St. Athanasius sums up Christian belief by saying, instead of fearing death by the sign of the cross and by faith in Christ, disciples of Jesus trample on it as something dead. Death does not win. Jesus does. He meets them in the gap of death. This means that we're invited to meet Jesus at the graveside. We're invited to, to meet Jesus at the hospice bed. We're invited to meet Jesus on the battlefield as soldiers are dying. We're invited to meet Jesus as our bodies are breaking. We're invited to meet him in the gap, to not fear. Listen, you don't have to buy into the American obsession with youth. You don't have to obey that tyrant. You don't have to play that game. You don't have to play weird legacy games. You can stand in your mortality and know that Jesus Christ has given you a down pledge a down payment and a pledge of immortality. Number two, he meets them also in their weakness. He meets them in the gap of death, but he meets them in the gap of weakness and we need both. Look at verse one. This is really subtle, but it's really powerful. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. Now here's what's happening and you have to know a bit of the culture to know how powerful this is. In the gospel accounts, the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection are all women. And that may not seem like a big deal today because thanks be to God, men and women are treated more equally. But 2,000 years ago in this particular culture, did you know that women were particularly marginalized to such a degree that women's testimony counted for zero in a court of law? If you were a woman, you couldn't testify. And something crazy happens with the resurrection. Women who didn't have a voice to testify are invited to be the first people to bear witness as, as those that testify to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the most important thing in the history of the world. Here's what's happening. It's wild. The very place of cultural weakness and cultural shame that these women endured became a place where Jesus meets them in that gap and their weakness becomes beautiful. It becomes strong. It becomes powerful. Here's what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what was foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what was weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what was low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing, things that are. Nietzsche said that Christians are mostly women and slaves. And he meant it as an insult. It's not an insult. <laughs> It's part of our testimony before the world that Jesus meets us in the places of our limitation. He meets us in the places of our weakness. He meets us in the part of our story that we might even be embarrassed about. He meets us where we're broken. He meets us where we limp. He meets us where we need help and where we need strength. And he makes those places beautiful. They testify to the glory of God. I don't know where the gap is in your life there. I don't know if it's your story, if there's shame, if there's embarrassment. I don't know if it's physical limitations, if it's mental limitations, if it's financial limitations, but the resurrection of Jesus means that you don't have to avoid the gap. You get to meet him there. 
you get to see his enoughness there. This leads to the third thing. The resurrected Jesus meets them in their sin. He meets them in their sin. I just want to pause here for just a second and do a tiny bit of cultural work. When we hear the word sin today, we think marketing. We think the vices that are pretty much harmless and mostly just pleasurable. Sin is indulgence in ice cream or it's going to a resort where you're going to eat too much or drink too much. We have sinful pleasures and most of it's connected to just bodily gratification. The Bible paints a very different picture of sin. Sin is, sin is the way in which we break what's beautiful. It's the way in which we gobble each other up. It's the way in which we destroy, we kill, we wound, we maim with our words and with our actions. It's the ways in which we elevate things that don't deserve our deepest love to the place of ultimate importance. It's the way that we become blind. It's the way that we become dead. And Jesus meets them in their place of their sin through the resurrection. Look at verse seven. But go tell his disciples and Peter. The phrasing there is so important. If you've read this story, here's why the disciples and Peter are broken out and they're addressed separately. Peter has blown it so bad. He sinned so deeply. He's blasphemed so horrifically. He no longer considers himself a disciple of Jesus. On the night Jesus was betrayed, Peter denied even knowing Jesus three times. And not only did he deny, deny even knowing Jesus, he invoked a curse from God on himself, in essence saying, if I know Jesus, may I be damned. Peter has blown it. Peter is in the well of despair. Peter's guilt is so loud. And here's what you get to see in the gospel. The death of Jesus atoned for Peter's blasphemy. Jesus bore Peter's denial in his flesh on the cross. But Jesus was raised from the dead to ensure that Peter got it. Romans chapter four, verse 25 says, he was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The sin that accuses us, the sin that leads us into guilt, the sin that points its finger at us. Jesus died for that sin on the cross, but listen, he was raised from the dead to help us receive the benefits of the cross. And Jesus sends this good news that he's gonna meet Peter and the disciples because the very place of most gratuitous failure and lack becomes the place where Peter gets to experience one word that sums up the Christian faith, grace. Grace. In light of the resurrection, love is indeed stronger than death. Forgiveness is mightier than judgment and the blood of Jesus speaks a better word than accusation. The resurrection means that the accuser's been cast out and the high priest has ascended. That means Jesus, who is alive in the presence of his father, lives to intercede for you. And I don't know where you've blown it. I don't know where you've failed. I know the places that I've blown it and the places that I fail. And the message of the resurrection is in the midst of the worst things that we've done, in the midst of our most heinous crimes against God and each other, Jesus Christ has paid the price and Jesus Christ lives to intercede. And that means there is no scarlet letter on you. To trust in Jesus is to have your guilt removed. It's to, it's to be washed clean. It's to have your Father in heaven who's holy, not be grossed out, disappointed, or have a desire to shun you but through the work of Jesus, it's his delight being poured out on you.
It's freedom. And this leads to the last thing. The resurrection of Jesus meets them in the place of death. It meets them in the place of weakness. It meets them in the place of sin. But it also meets them in the place of failure. And this is really good news, at least for me. Look at verse 7. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and they fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Okay, track with me. This is really weird. Like up to this point, the women have been killing it. The guys have blown it at every turn. They were like, Jesus will never leave you. And the second, the second Jesus is arrested, they're like, I'm out. Self-preservation. Every man for himself. The women have not done that. They've stood by Jesus. They were there at the cross. And now the women have done this really brave, this really bold and courageous thing in going to care for the body of Jesus, meaning if anybody saw him, they would be identified even more deeply as his followers. They're risking their lives. And then this messenger comes and he says, hey, ladies, you have this powerful message of resurrection. Go and tell the disciples that Jesus is going to meet them in Galilee. And the ladies that have been bold at every turn, they fail just like the guys. And here's what's wild. It's the end of Mark's gospel. Right? Like verse 9 on, that's not part of inspired sacred scripture. And we'll talk about that tomorrow in a podcast. We'll break it down. That shouldn't give you a lack of confidence in your Bible. It should give you more confidence, right? The oldest manuscripts of the gospel of Mark end at verse eight. That's the ending of his gospel. And later, as the centuries went on, scribes read the end of Mark's gospel and they were like, that sucks. Terrible. We've got to improve on that ending. And so they wrote all kinds of weird stuff about snakes and scorpions. And they just went to town trying to fix the ending of Mark's gospel. They're like, hey, it's not going to sell. There's no sequel coming. And, and all week long as I've studied this gospel, I've told a bunch of our pastors tons of terrible jokes that I'd like to get back about how poorly Mark did ending his gospel. I'm like, what happened? Did he get sick of writing? Did he get hit by a bus? Did he have the flu? Was his hand cramping up? Because he tells this beautiful story about Jesus. And then the last thing he says is that these women get entrusted with the, mes the message of the resurrection and they clam up and go silent, mic drop into the story. Hey, listen, it's actually intentional and powerful and beautiful that the gospel ends here. Because what's happening in Mark ending the gospel here with the lady's failure to tell the disciples about the resurrection with fear getting the upper hand in this moment, we're reminded that the only person that's been the hero of this entire story is Jesus. <laughs> Peter's blown it. The disciples have blown it. The high priest has blown it. The nation of Israel's blown it. Everybody's blown it. And this is a reminder that the church of Jesus is not, it's not to be a group of people that don't have problems and flaws and failures. The church of Jesus is not the shiny people of the world uniting because we're so good. The church of Jesus Christ has been described as one by one author as the International League of the Guilty. The church of the people who now and tomorrow and until Jesus returns repeatedly and constantly throw ourselves on the merits of Jesus. His righteousness, his goodness, his supply, the alien righteousness we receive by grace through faith in him. We need Jesus at every turn of the story. And we don't use that as an excuse to just give up. These ladies are eventually going to get it right. They're going to share. But they and us, listen, they and us 
are not the hero of the story. Jesus is. And this is a reminder, this is a reminder that you and me are not invited to trust Jesus for our righteousness and then complete the work of discipleship based on being better than anybody. (laughs) We enter by grace. We continue by grace. We finish by grace. And all the glory gets placed on Jesus. All the credit is his. And that's what Christianity is. What this means, friends, is really powerful. It means this. You have an invitation from your heavenly father to figure out today what you're going to do with the gap. And I don't know where you're filling it today. Maybe it's the gap of your mortality. Maybe it's the gap of your morality. Maybe it's the gap of your sin. Maybe it's the gap of a place of shame or brokenness or weakness or limitation. Maybe it's the gap where you're experiencing failure. Maybe it's the relational gap. The things that you wanted to see happen in your relationship have now turned into a war zone or a wasteland. The invitation of the resurrection is to not build a bridge over the gap in your own strength that's just going to collapse. It's not to take a detour around the gap. It's not to pretend that the gap's not there. The invitation of the resurrection is to invite the living, resurrected Jesus to meet you in the gap, to bring his love, to bring his power, to bring his forgiveness, to bring all of his merits, to bring his work of intercessor, to help you and meet you and be with you in the gap. And then to go and be with Jesus in the gap of our world. To make him known in the places that are the darkest and most broken. And so today, what will you do with your gap? What will you do? You can try to fill it with all kinds of stuff. You can try to keep busy and not look at it. Or you can acknowledge it and get one step closer to wisdom. And you can hear the voice of a father in heaven who loves you, inviting you to stop pretending, stop running, stop playing, and simply to surrender to Jesus in the gap, to meet him there. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for the life of Jesus. Thank you for the death of Jesus, for its power. Thank you for the love of Jesus. Thank you for the mercy that we've been extended in Jesus. And thank you, thank you, thank you for the resurrection. Thank you that death doesn't get the last word, sin doesn't get the last word, our weakness doesn't get the last word, and our failure doesn't get the last word. Jesus, we love you. We we would delight in seeing you in the gaps of our lives. So meet us today and fill us today. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.